0: I couldn't climb into my Baptist pulpit every Sunday morning and say, thus saith the Lord, I think, or thus saith the Lord, I hope. Verily, verily,
1: I say unto you that possibly, possibly this might not be it. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to another tongue-tangling episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley from the Coming Home Network. Visit us at chnetwork.org. Ken, how
0: are you? I am tongue-tangling. I'm just doing great.
1: Good, good. I brought a souvenir. I've got show and tell to kick off this episode. Okay. Uh, To set this up, uh, in 2017, it was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. Um, On October 31st of that year, our colleague, Jim Anderson, went to Germany during that, I guess they call it a jubilee year, Mm -hmm. uh, and he brought me back a souvenir. And this is the souvenir he brought me. He brought me this Martin Luther comic book that was uh, right there.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So I have a Martin Luther comic book in my house on my shelf, and it's full of all kinds of fantastic images and drawings. And yes, its
0: I know that you're jealous of me right now. Is it funny?
1: Um, I, it's it's kind of conflicted. I mean, you see that they got the devil over Martin Luther's shoulder. They yeah. All the things he wrestled with, you know, in the course of setting off this powder keg of the Reformation. But anyway, I thought you might
0: enjoy that. So yeah, especially since that's not the subject we're talking about today. But it, No, I, we it, talked it about it for well. the past two weeks. Uh, People are going to think, wow, you guys are going to talk about Luther. We're actually not.
1: We're not piling on Luther today. No. We're, we're piling on ourselves, actually, because yeah, you and I bit. are going to be sorting through a little bit. Some of the logical uh, questions that we address when you were a Baptist pastor, I was a evangelical Christian Mm indie rocker, this question of Sola Scriptura, and was it logical?
0: Yeah, and we're trying to tie together. um, This is the last episode in a series that's gone on for about 12, 13 weeks on Sola Scriptura. We've been focused on Sola Scriptura because Sola Scriptura is the foundation of Protestantism as a system of thought, as a worldview. And again, I just want to repeat, our desire in this series really is to, my desire, yours I know as well, is to attempt to communicate something of what led you and I to a kind of, to pull off a kind of reverse reformation. Um, That is both of us being Protestants, you being in the Methodist tradition, me being Baptist, more Calvinist. But what led us to walk away from this foundation of our worldview, Sola Scriptura, um, as we came to view this foundation as having some significant cracks in it. And we moved on to another foundation that we viewed as firmer, uh, a more firm foundation in the Catholic Church.
1: Without, for, without uh, denying our allegiance to the sacred scripture as fully inspired by God.
0: No, not um, at all. Not at all. Yeah, as
1: a matter of fact, it ele- in my case, it elevated my view of scriptures once I came over to the Catholic view.
0: Well, for me, um, to sum it, where we've gone so far... It was really all about coming to see that Bible-only Christianity um, isn't really the teaching of the Bible. (laughs) Um, That Bible-only Christianity never had been the teaching of the Church in the first 1,500 years of her existence. And since the time of the Reformation, It has served as a perfect blueprint for theological anarchy and division. So coming to see that Bible-only Christianity wasn't really biblical, that it wasn't historical, it hadn't been the practice of the church, that it didn't work. In fact, that it led um, inexorably, it seems, to division, to splintering, to theological chaos. And then last of all, which is our subject for today, was coming to see that sola scriptura isn't even logical, that sola scriptura, in fact, refutes itself because it winds up implicitly relying on the authority of the catholic church to assemble the bible then it that it then takes as its sole infallible rule but and that's this what is one of those and
1: yeah and this is one of those you know if you want to see an argument spin out of control mm-hmm. and everybody just revert to their talking points then you know, this first argument we're going to address is one of those where it's like, well, you know, you wouldn't know what was supposed to be in the Bible unless the church told you. And well, but the church already knew what was supposed to be in the Bible. And you get into the one of those feedback loops. And this is one of the biggest logical questions that often comes up when Catholics and Protestants try and talk about this question of the yeah. canon.
0: Yeah, and, I, and so I want to try and walk through it, uh, you know, um, piece by piece. Um, the assertion that sola scriptura isn't logical, that assertion, Typically, usually, it focuses on the issue of the canon of Scripture, and specifically on this question, how can the Protestant, committed to Sola Scriptura, know which books are inspired and ought to be included in their Bibles when the Bible doesn't tell them? That's kind of the question at the heart of it. Now, here's how the issue was presented to me, Matt, and I don't really remember who presented it. Early on, uh, as I began to study the case for the Catholic faith, someone said to me, Ken, You know that the Bible didn't come to the church all at once, 66 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, 66 as a Protestant, 27 in the New, all bound in leather with gold leaf on the edges and red letter, you know, Jesus' words and red letter. You know that. Actually, the decision, Ken, as to which books ought to be received as inspired and canonical, involved a process. It involved a process that stretched over several centuries, Ken culminating in councils of the Catholic Church held in the late 4th century AD. And then the question, do you believe that the Holy Spirit led the church in those councils to a decision that is true and binding? Yes or no? And that's where everybody
1: everybody retreats to their narratives that they've already gotten in place, right?
0: So so this is how it was set up for me. And I got to tell you that when, when I first heard this, I could see immediately that it was a bit of a loaded question. In fact, the question kind of reminded me of the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus when they said, hey, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Where it's sort of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't kind of situation. Same with me, because if I answered the, the one who was posing this to me, if I answered yes, I believe the Holy Spirit led the Catholic Church and those councils to a decision that is binding and true, infallible, if you will. Then my friend could say, well, Ken, welcome to the Catholic Church. But if I said, on the other hand, no, 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 I'm with Luther. I do not believe in the, you know, the, the binding authority of any council. Then my friend could say to me, well, then how can you be entirely sure that you have all the right books in your Bible? I mean, have you gone back and examined the historical, traditional, biblical case for each one of those books? Maybe you need to go back, Ken. Maybe you need to assemble your own canon. So this is the sort of dilemma. And this is how I understand it. You see, as a Protestant, I was committed to Sola Scriptura. Well, what is the heart of Sola Scriptura except the belief that when it comes to God's special revelation to us, I should accept as true only what can be shown to me to be clearly taught in the pages of Scripture. That's what Sola Scriptura meant. Um, That was really the heart of Sola Scriptura in my mind. So the problem is, but nowhere in the pages of Scripture am I told which books to include in, to include in Scripture. Take the New Testament as an example. Where am I told that the writings of Luke, who, uh, uh, who appears to have been a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul, where am I told that the writings of Luke are inspired and apostolic and that they belong in the New Testament? What about the Epistle to the Hebrews? I mean, to this day, we don't really know for sure who wrote the Epistle to the Hebrews. How do I know that it ought to be included? Well, as a Protestant committed to Sola Scriptura, that's the question. What grounds did I have for saying that the books I had in my Bible were the right books, each of them inspired and infallible? How did I know?
1: Yeah, and again, sometimes I'll run into the argument where people will say, well, the church just knew through the power of the Holy Spirit. By church, they don't mean the Catholic church, they just mean the assembly of all who believed in Christ everywhere, some invisible kind of consensus. Um, But that's not how the scriptures actually came about. They didn't come about through an invisible consensus that was eventually codified. They came about through a preservation, as you said, from St. Irenaeus, uh, and multiple times through this series, there's a deposit of faith that was guarded and protected, and then at the proper time, collected and compiled and given a rubber stamp and said, this is the word of God. Um, well
0: you're you're summarizing there um the first two responses that we're going to work through. So yeah. well done and now l- let's sort of fill them out, all right? But anyway, this is the challenge that was put to me, Matt. And while I don't remember really who put the challenge still, I'm thinking it was either Jimmy Agan in my conversations with him or with Scott Hahn in my conversations with him. There was no really,
1: internet back then, you know. You were all Yeah,
0: yeah I don't remember who at the time. What C I remember colon definitely slash, slash, yeah. What I remember definitely is that when I began to try to answer that question, how did I know? And answer that question specifically as a Protestant committed to sola scriptura, I knew that I was in uh, trouble to some degree. So anyway, what I want to do here is I want to work through the various responses, the possible responses, the responses that Protestants give to this challenge. And as I said, you just summarized bits of the first two, but let's break them apart. The first response is this, it's possible for someone to say, hey, listen, the Bible doesn't need to tell me which books belong in the Bible. We Christians inherited the Old Testament from the Jews, and when it comes to the New Testament, essentially everyone knew which books were apostolic, which books were inspired. So it it just wasn't that hard for the church to formally define the canon of Scripture. In other words, you Catholics are exaggerating the difficulty to make us think that we need your authority in some way. okay? That's the first one, which basically can be summarized as, hey, it wasn't that hard, everyone knew. And the problem with that (laughs) is that it simply isn't true. And here I have to walk through a little bit of detail, okay? It isn't true to portray the process involved in deciding exactly which books would be included in the canon as though it were a slam dunk. And all one has to do is to read A few, a small handful of scholarly works on the formation of the New Testament canon to see that this is true. And so, a few facts. As it turns out, while there seems to have been fairly early acceptance of the Gospels and a number of Paul's epistles, in the first three centuries of Christian history, no less than six of the 27 books we now have in our New Testament, we're talking basically almost 25%, no less than six of those books were disputed. Within the church, to one degree or another, and the books we're talking about are Hebrews, James, the Apocalypse of John, Second Peter, Jude, Second, and Third John. The Miratorian fragment um, contains really the earliest New Testament canon that we have. It dates from around the end of the second century. Around and the same lists, time as
1: St. Irenaeus,
0: yeah. Yeah, and it lists only 21 of the 27 books that we have in our New Testaments. And then it also includes the Book of Wisdom in its New Testament list, a book that Catholics have in their Old Testament and Protestants don't accept as authoritative at all. Well, moving forward, Matt, even as late as 330 AD, we find the church historian Eusebius describing the New Testament as containing only one epistle of John and one of Peter, although we know there are three of John and there are two of Peter. Eusebius refers to James, Second Peter, and Jude as disputed writings, quote-unquote. And he describes, um, he refers to the Apocalypse of John as a book accepted by some, but again quoting, rejected by others. And although Eusebius doesn't mention the book of Hebrews, um, the letter of Hebrews as being disputed, we know that it was not only disputed, it was rejected, especially in the Western parts of the church. And then, so not only do you have these disputes about books that wound up in our New Testament, there, there were also those in the early centuries of Christianity that accepted books into their New Testaments that we do not now have in our New Testaments. The Muratorian Canon includes the Book of Wisdom. Well, Clement of Alexandria, his dates are AD 150 to 215. He included in his New Testament, first Clement, the preaching of Peter, the revelation of Peter, the Didache, and the shepherd of Hermas. At least he appears to have included those in his list of the New Testament. And Origen, also from Alexandria, included all of these as well as the Epistle of Barnabas. That is until he moved from Alexandria to Antioch and he discovered that no one in that area accepted these books. And so he no longer The point did.
1: being that if someone says, please open your New Testament, everybody's opening uh, different books. You know, uh, everybody's celebrating the same liturgy and liturgy, yeah. the scripture that makes it into the liturgy. That's a, you know, this is one of the, the criteria that we'll see later on is how things ended up in the canon. But it wasn't like everybody, it just fell out of the sky
0: no, it, or, and I don't or As exa- soon as
1: Paul wrote Second Timothy, yeah. everybody's like, okay, that's Bible. Um put that in the Bible
0: pile. Yeah, and I wouldn't want to exaggerate the disagreements either, except to just simply state that over the course of several centuries you do have six of the twenty seven books in our New Testament disputed to one degree or another. And with all the distance that existed within the various cities and churches and all of that, who knows exactly what lists existed here and there and the other place? So the truth is that the very first list that we have from the early church that matches exactly the New Testament that we now have is the list of Athanasius, dating from the mid-4th century AD. This is the, the list of 27 books, then, that was confirmed and approved by Pope Damasus in 382 AD, and then confirmed at the councils of Hippo, 393 AD, and Carthage, 397 and 419. And all of that detail to simply say, it's not true to say everyone knew it was a slam dunk. There was no problem. The books that were apostolic and inspired, and therefore deciding on the canon, what canon would be accepted throughout the church, was no big deal.
1: Yeah. And that list that Athanasius, St. Athanasius would have had in the middle of the fourth century, it would have been a list that we have from him decades after St. Athanasius attended the Council of Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed was promulgated. Mm-hmm. So this is a guy who would have experienced— the, I mean, we have his his interaction with the Nicene mm-hmm. Creed chronologically before we have his list of what we
0: yeah, kind today of see as kind the— kind of emphasizing the, the idea that that in terms of chronology, you have the church before you have a canon, and you yeah. have a great deal of tradition, and even creeds before you have a canon that is— um, formally approved in some way throughout for the entire church. Okay, all right. So response so again, number then, two. Then, well, so again, though the question yep. still stands: what uh, What grounds did I have as a Protestant then committed to sola scriptura for believing that my Bible contained all the right books? I mean, if I can't find a list in the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't tell me which books. And if I can't, you know, uh, hide away in the corner of saying, "Oh, well, it was a slam dunk; everybody knew," so it's not an issue at all. What would be another response? And this is one that you hinted at too, because this is the most common response that Protestants will give to this challenge. And it's the response that I may have given at the time. I don't really remember. It goes sort of like this There may not be an inspired table of contents, Matt, in the New Testament. But Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. And because the same spirit that inspired the apostles resides in God's people, God's people were able to recognize the voice of Jesus in Scripture. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, we say, the Holy Spirit led the church to recognize the canon.
1: You're telling me you would have made that argument as a Protestant?
0: This is the most common uh, response that I hear, and I, I understand what you're getting at, though. Yeah, because, I mean, think about a Protestant Bible study. This is a little bit of an aside. But would this kind of logic ever have flown in a Protestant Bible study? I mean, Imagine you come into a Protestant Bible study and imagine that I'm making an argument from the New Testament Imagine that you counter me with some facts and details and passages from the New Testament, and then I respond, well, Matt, the only problem is the Holy Spirit has led me to this understanding, and so you you just need to be quiet. You you would never accept that. You would never accept in a Protestant context the argument, well, the Holy Spirit led me to recognize that this is the right interpretation. And yet, this is basically what is put forward. Um, The Holy Spirit led the church. My sheep hear my voice. The church was led to understand. Okay. But as soon as we ask the question, here's the one for me. As soon as we ask the question, how exactly did the Holy Spirit lead the Church to recognize the canon? How exactly did that happen? It becomes clear that the response really doesn't solve the problem. In fact, the response su- supports the the Catholic Church this view in a way, because remember, when Protestants look to script, I mean, while Protestants look to Scripture alone, at least theoretically, Catholics look to Scripture tradition, and the teaching office of the church, the magisterium. And in the case of the uh, of the canons being received by the church, interestingly, we see all three. We see scripture, we see tradition, and we see the work or the decision of the magisterium. Because to resolve the problem of the canon, that is the the disputes that existed, the church had to ask all sorts of questions. And the kinds of questions the church asked were questions like, Which books claim to have been written by an apostle? Um, Which books contain sound doctrine and breathe with the Spirit of Christ? You could say those are scriptural arguments. But then they also ask questions like uh, which books um, seem to have come from the apostolic age? They date back to the time of the apostles. Which books have been received by the oldest and most prestigious churches as having come from the apostolic era? In other words, tradition. So you've got scripture and you've got tradition. Tradition played a huge role, in other words, in determining which books would eventually be received. And then, to cap it all, you have the magisterium of the church giving formal approval, Pope Damasus in eight, I mean, in in 382, the councils of Hippo, the Councils of Carthage. In other words, what I'm saying here is that when we look at the actual historical process by which the church recognized the voice of Jesus speaking in Scripture and defining the canon. We see scripture, tradition, and the magisterium at work. In other words, this process fits the Catholic view of how authority works and how we come to know. It doesn't fit the Protestant view, which continues to insist that it's the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, all that is needed for faith and practice.
1: And Ken, this gets at the heart of something else that's a distinctive of Catholic thought on a number of issues. And that is this question of, is it either or, or is it both and? Uh, when it comes to a ton of issues, is it the Bible or is it the church? Well, yes, you know. But it's the same question yeah. that we ask when we talk about: is it faith or is it works? Yes.
0: Yeah, and um, we've been talking. Should I feast few- or should
1: I fast? Yes. Should I have be celibate or have a million babies? Yes. You know, it's it's all the same kind of worldview that's applied. You just you can't just isolate something off in a field and say, well, that's what we believe.
0: Yeah, and we've been talking in several of our past episodes about how scripture and tradition work together in the early church to provide the church with knowledge of what is true. The teaching of scripture and then the tradition, that is, the doctrine of the apostles as was preserved in the churches and handed down. And what we're seeing here is simply the same thing with regard to putting the canon together. Um, the, The church looked to scripture, but the church was looking to tradition in order to come to a formal decision. And then you know again someone can say well the you know the people of god heard the voice of jesus well do you mean each one do you mean each individual christian heard the voice of jesus and decided for themselves or it was a group local church, yeah yeah or each local church did it no 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 in the end it was the church church's magisterium it was the bishops of the church
1: the successors of the apostles
0: that gave formal definition okay now it gets a little worse though because uh, let's say that i'm willing to agree as a Protestant, still that I was, it was Jimmy, it was Scott, whoever was saying it. Let's say that I was willing to agree with them. Okay, the Holy Spirit led the church in those councils to to recognize the voice of Christ and choo- and to choose exactly the right 27 books for its New Testament. If I were to say that, what would I say about the fact that this same church, in these same councils, decided on the Old Testament canon? containing the seven extra books that Catholics have and that Protestants don't. And, And what would I say about the fact that this same church deciding the New Testament canon and deciding the Old Testament canon at the same time was a church that believed in a ministerial priesthood, that believed in the rule of bishops in the church, that taught the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, that taught baptismal regeneration, practiced infant baptism, had altars in every church, practiced and believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, What would I say about all that? We call
1: that selective inspiration. Yeah, and here's
0: where I have to throw in a little story, because I was talking with an old Protestant friend about this, I don't know, six months ago actually. had this conversation, and I walked through the details of how the canon was, was, you know, what happened in those early centuries. And I said to him, do you believe that the Holy Spirit led the church and those councils to a decision that is infallible? And he said, yes. And I said, you do? And he said, yes. Because, see, since the Bible is the foundation of my worldview as a Protestant, then I have to believe that, that, that at least on that issue, the Holy Spirit led the church infallibly. I mean, the Holy Spirit, Christ had to lead the church infallibly on that issue because that provides us with the foundation for everything. So then I said, but what about the fact that that same church um, decided on the Catholic Old Testament? And he said, not a problem. Sometimes the Spirit leads. And sometimes the spirit doesn't. That's there's your word selective.
1: Yeah, that's that's the selectiveness uh, big time. Um, okay. But uh, again, th- th- you see this argument applied in certain certain places. I've I've even seen people parade things out like, well, God used you know wicked kings to help avenge Israel in certain places in the Old Testament. Um, but this is this is not just avenging some wrong in a territory dispute. This is like the
0: word of God. Yeah, this is making decisions. Yeah, this is so, making decisions. You know, and it, and it's simply a fact that the very same church, and we're talking about the end of the fourth century, this is the Catholic Church. And the very same church that came to this decision on these exact 27 books in the New Testament also came to a decision, the 73 books in the Old Testament, also were teaching baptismal regeneration, the real presence of Christ, papal authority, all of that. This is the church, the same church doing that, which kind of leads to a third response, which I want to uh, you know look at. Now, this is a response that I find very common among uh, Protestant apologists and that I hear in debates often. And it goes something like this. Okay, here's how it goes. In effect, Catholicism places the church above the word of God by saying that the church determined the canon of scripture. Okay, think about that. Saying that the church, in, in essence, created the canon, you're, the church is putting itself above the word of God. No, it is God who created the canon. It's God who determined the canon, not the church. The moment that inspired book was written, it became part of the canon, whether anyone on earth knew it or not. And when the last inspired book was penned, and you know the, the apostle laid down his pen after the last word, then the canon was closed. God is the one who created the canon. The Catholic Church merely recognized what God had already done. I've heard this in numerous debates,
1: and they think that we disagree with them when they say that.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, well, we certainly disagree with the part that the we church disagree is with the conclusion that they draw from that. Yeah, yeah. And so, well, I'm I'm going to come to sort of the psychology of this in a second, but the answer, you're right, is to simply say, of course. I mean, of course, God is the creator of the canon. So I, I want to state that clearly to anyone who hears this video. Of course, God is the creator of the canon. Of course, objectively speaking, the canon of Scripture was completed the moment, the instant that the last inspired book was written. And of course, the church merely recognized, quote unquote, what God had already done. But this is all the church has ever claimed for itself, that the church recognized. And this is what we've been looking at in in the last response. Now, the worst case, Matt, I think that this charge that the church is claiming to be the creator of the canon and standing above, you know, sola ecclesia and all that, standing above the word of God. Worst case scenario, I view this charge as a deliberate attempt to misstate the case because it makes it easier to wiggle out of the logic and the problem, the dilemma that we're talking about. A deliberate attempt. But best case scenario, and I would, trying to, you know, trying to be gracious Best case scenario, this is a distraction based on a misunderstanding of what the church actually claims. Either way, this is definitely a red herring. Um, It's a rabbit hole because the church doesn't believe that she created the canon. The church doesn't believe that she is above the canon, determined the canon, created the canon. What the church believes is simply that she was led by the Holy Spirit through this process of reflecting on scripture, reflecting on tradition, to come to a decision about the canon that is true and binding. That's what the church believes.
1: And this is is the same church that was told, the apostles who were the originators of this church were told by Jesus Christ himself, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Yeah. So their successors are doing exactly what christ gave the apostles the authority to do when they bind the canon of scripture
0: that that's a beautiful point in fact it reminds me jesus also said that he would send the holy spirit and the holy spirit would lead them into the truth now as a protestant i tended to take that to simply mean that the holy spirit would lead the apostles into the truth and not not the church not their successors or anything like that. i always that.
1: took it to mean me would lead me personally into the truth
0: but when you think of it protestants typically would reject that idea no the Holy Spirit doesn't lead the Church, you know the the successors to the apostles into the truth. but then they turn around and say that God's people recognized the voice of Jesus speaking in Scripture, and they were led to recognize the right books, which is the same thing. In other words, they were led to the truth. The church was led to the truth. Now th- th- this is the problem then that was posed again. Um, it was being posed to me as a Protestant you know, Catholics believe that the Holy Spirit led the church in these decisions. Do you agree? Yes or no? And Matt, I preached every Sunday from a New Testament that had been assembled in those early centuries and in those early councils and had been given to me, in a sense, from the church of that time that was the Catholic church. And the question for me then was, did I trust that church to have been led by the Spirit in this decision? Yes or no? Now, there are some Protestants that have thought this through carefully, and they say, no, I'm thinking of R.C. Sproul. Um, very, very R.C.,
1: by the way, does not stand for Roman Catholic, we just want to make it clear.
0: Yeah, yeah, very, very famous popular Reformed theologian. He looked at this situation, and consistent with his commitment to Sola Scriptura, he answered, no, we do not trust that the Holy Spirit led the Catholic Church in its decision in this kind of a way. We don't. Now, Sproul, on the other hand, uh, he falls into the first category of it wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard to figure out which, which books, because he believed that the internal evidence for the New Testament writings and the external evidence was strong enough that he didn't think it was a big deal. He thought, you know, that by looking at this, we basically can be sure that we've got the right books. He wasn't worried. But he admitted that, technically speaking, these are his words that the best a Protestant can say is that he possesses a quote, fallible collection of infallible books.
1: Well, guess what, Ken? If this is supposed to be the sole rule of faith, that nothing else, nothing more and nothing less, and it has material and formal sufficiency for salvation, that ain't good enough for me. I'm sorry. A fallible list of infallible books is not good enough for me.
0: No, you you know, I was listening to a series of tapes that he had made on Catholicism and and, and his tape on Sola Scriptura. When I heard him say this, Uh, You know, that that technically speaking, the best that a Protestant can say, he admitted, is that we have a fallible collection of infallible books. And I remember listening to this and and thinking, is this even a coherent? I mean, it's a sentence, but is the idea even coherent? Because when you think of it, if I say to you that I have a fallible collection, well, isn't that the same thing as saying that not all the books in it might be the right ones? And we (laughs) might be missing
1: some like really important ones. Yeah, but, so, you know, so if I say you. I have
0: a fallible collection, then I can't say of infallible books, because uh, saying it's a fallible collection implies that some of the books might not be infallible. So you know, it's kind of an incoherent statement, and yet he admits that that's, that's the situation. But again, he the way he feels is this. He just thinks, hey, look, the evidence for these books, it wasn't that hard to, d- to decide on the books. And so technically speaking, all right. You know, the collection is fallible because the church wasn't led to an infallible conclusion, but I'm not worried. That's basically what he's saying.
1: I am. If that's the conclusion, then I am definitely worried.
0: Yeah, well, here's the thing. In the end, we all know, both Catholics and Protestants, we all know basically how the New Testament—we'll stick with that for a moment—came to be. We all know that. I mean, inspired apostles wrote books letters, they handed these on to the churches, the churches preserved them, and they handed it on to their successors, and down the line, as the church grew, as the church spread throughout the Roman Empire, disagreements arose in various parts of the church, various communities, as to which books are inspired and apostolic and ought to be received, and which ones are not, there was dispute. And then, as we saw in a past episode, as heresies arose that attacked the canon of scripture, especially Marcionism, um, the Gnostics, the Montanists. Which we won't go into now, but it became all the more necessary for the church to come to some authoritative determination. This was finally done in the late fourth century of Christian history. That's how the New Testament canon came to be. We all know this. This is the basic story. Well, over time, it was becoming clear to me that as a Protestant, I faced a dilemma. And I can put it this way. If I was going to take my Bible to be my sole infallible rule, as, as you just said a moment ago, if I was going to take it to be to function as my sole infallible rule of faith and, and, and practice, well, I had to know which books belonged to it. You know, I couldn't go around very well saying, hey, I think these are all the right books, and what they teach is infallibly true. I couldn't climb into my Baptist pulpit every Sunday morning and say, thus saith the Lord, I think. Or... Thus saith the Lord, I hope. Verily, verily,
1: I say unto you that possibly, possibly this might not be it.
0: Yeah, because after all, there's a fallible collection of infallible books. I wanted to preach to you from Hebrews this morning, but it might not be inspired, and it might throw off the entire theology of the New Testament. And on top um, of it,
1: it's just my personal interpretation, according to my private judgment anyway.
0: To have the Bible function as my infallible rule, I had to know. And the question was, well, how did I know? And the reality that was beginning to sink in was this. I had implicitly accepted the authority of the church to make those decisions for me. Way back in the early centuries, I had implicitly accepted the authority of that church to examine scripture, to examine the tradition, scripture, tradition, and then as magisterium to meet and to decide what would be binding, what would be accepted by all Christians everywhere.
1: All right, now I'm going to be the psychologist here and say, but Ken, how did that make you feel because I know how it made me feel it made me feel like my stomach was going through the floor like I, I, my heart was oh. in my throat and then my head was spinning around I was I I didn't know what to do with myself once I, I discovered that by by accepting yeah. the New Testament canon I was accepting the authority of the church that put it together which was the Catholic Church
0: yeah but because to a To have my infallible rule of faith and practice, to have it be an infallible rule, I had to believe that the Holy Spirit had led the church when it went through all this process in these early centuries and made these decisions. And had led the church to keep those books for centuries in the first place. Yeah. And so I had to, in a sense, I had to side with Catholicism. But then in order to escape Catholicism, I had to say, but the Holy Spirit only led them on the New Testament. It, It didn't lead them to a firm decision on the Old Testament. They're dead wrong. And it didn't lead them to firm decisions on all these other doctrines. In fact, they were dead wrong on everything except the New Testament. So yeah, how did I feel? Um, I I feel kind of twisted up inside. I mean, truthfully, I felt like either this is going to lead me into the Catholic Church or it's going to lead me into agnosticism. Because I know that I can't go back 2,000 years and re-examine the historical case for every book and assemble my own uh, canon. But this question kind of came to me too, Matt. If I, as a Protestant, based on Sola Scriptura, if, if I believe that I have the right a private interpretation, why don't I believe that I have the right to go back and privately assemble my own canon?
1: Luther even said something similar to this, the idea that there was a canon within the canon. You know, like, <laughs> you know, there's some inspiration, you know, scripture is inspired, yeah. but some things are slightly more inspired than others.
0: Yeah, um, and the fact that he was willing, in a sense, to relegate certain books to a lower, Throw a Jimmy stomach. on the
1: stove, as you always like to say. Yeah.
0: Now, this may sound kind of like a, well, this is a brain twister. Let me throw this brain twister at you and anyone li- listening. But what, what was beginning to dawn on me was that in order to have the foundation that I needed to be a Protestant, I would kind of have to first be a Catholic. <laughs> I'd have to be a Catholic first, trusting the authority of the church to get the foundation I needed to turn around and reject the church. To to even attack the authority of the Catholic Church from the pages of the Bible, I would have to first assume the authority of the Catholic Church, get my Bible, and then attack the authority of the Catholic Church from my Bible. Basically, here's kind of a colorful way of putting it, I would have to sit on the church's lap in order to reach up and slap the church in the face.
1: But that's what we're doing. Anytime time that we use the scriptures to argue against the Catholic Church. Um, and, and again, this is essentially one of the things that I came to realize I was doing. I was dissecting arguments and, and looking at the makeup of things and not the whole picture. Um, this both-and question that we were talking about before. Let's say that I put a pizza in front of you, Ken, and you say back to me, that's not a pizza. That's just some dough with tomato sauce on it, some mozzarella and a few pepperonis on it that you baked in an oven on three fifty for twenty minutes. That's not a pizza, you know. But but that's what you're dealing with here when you're making these arguments. You 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 find that you're isolating pieces out that are not meant to be isolated from one another. The Bible was never meant to be isolated from the church. It was never meant to be isolated from the tradition because it is tradition. It was never meant to be isolated from the magisterium because it is a binding table of contents that we get from the magisterium. You can't take these little things and take them apart and assume that they can live in isolation with one another. They were always meant to flourish together.
0: Yeah, and so if you you take scripture and tradition and the magisterium together, then you have a warrant, at least you're operating within a consistent worldview, you have a warrant for saying, when the decision of those councils was made, the decision is final. Just like when the decision at Nicaea was made about the deity of Christ, it's final.
1: Or when and, the decision was made at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts, it yeah, seems to the Holy Spirit and to us.
0: Right. The letter went out to all the churches, and they didn't. They didn't rebel and say, "Well, we'll we'll figure this out." You know, we have our own Bibles. They said, it "Is the the text Acts fifteen says they were, they were glad." You know, they were no. they were they were happy that it was settled. So at least see within a Catholic frame of thought or a Catholic worldview. You have a canon, and you have a canon you, you can trust. The problem is, if you really want to stand on the idea that the Bible alone, a sola scriptura, and that we only receive from you know as, as communicated special revelation from God, what can be shown to be clearly taught in the pages of Scripture, then you're left out there hanging with regard to many things. Let me just say this, Matt, to round up what I have to say. Sola scriptura didn't seem to be scriptural in the end to me. It didn't seem to be historical, didn't seem to be what the church had taught all the way up to the Reformation, which is kind of tough. It didn't seem to be workable. 500 years of Protestantism and hundreds and thousands of denominations were re- revealing that to be the case. And then finally, it didn't seem to be logical because it seemed to me that a belief in Sola Scriptura would itself have to rest on a belief in the, the authority of the church. So and- that's what it was. Sola Scriptura seemed to me. To refute itself.
1: And that's again, uh, as you stated before, we've stated on a number of these episodes. Um, the the conclusion you're left is with is, you know, maybe, maybe none of this is true, or maybe the Catholic understanding that scripture and tradition and the magisterium are always supposed to fit together is true. Yeah. And at first, if you're like me, that's a terrifying revelation, but it becomes a liberating and empowering and joyful revelation once you start to kind of live in it for a little bit and feel how it is to 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 be in that world where scripture tradition and magisterium are all kind of in harmony even if there's idiots running various dioceses around the world scripture tradition and the magisterium fit together and there's a liberty in that
0: um yeah, it's hard to explain kind of, because well like the way i explain it is that it gives christians the the freedom to focus on living out their faith and to focus on growing in their faith Instead of spending their whole life trying to figure out
1: if they're in the right faith,
0: yeah, if they're you know, a Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran? What about this? What about John Wesley? Yeah. And then when you add to that the fact that people couldn't even read mainly for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you're working as a farmer all day long. You come home, you got twenty five kids at at home. How are you going to figure this stuff out? Does it even make sense that the Lord would set up a system that required for you to figure it all out? So or yeah, that does it, that's does it the make more sense. I, That's the rest I think you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Or does it make more sense that God would have appointed leaders to carry on this tradition, to teach the faithful, special roles, apostles, teachers, who could then empower everybody who's farming or fishing or doing anything else to live that faith that was passed on to them and entrusted to them by generations of faithful men before. Um, Yeah, it's... Again, it's a, it was a gut wrenching feeling when I began to discover this and put this all together, but it became a liberating and exciting and empowering thing. Uh, Ken, I wish we had more time on this particular issue because I have so many other thoughts on sola scriptura, but uh, we have we have gone over and over and round and round on the topic. And I encourage people to go back and watch some of the previous videos to get a sense of how this argument kind of has been building over time. Uh, go to chnetwork.org if you want to find all of our. Resources at the Coming Home Network. Uh, Network, subscribe to our channel. We would love to hear from you in the comments. Please keep it civil and kind, because we want this to be a discussion, not a fist fight. In the comment box, Ken, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time.
0: You too, Matt. Thanks.